0: Welcome to Teachings in the Air. Welcome to Teachings in the Air Podcast with Jerry Oldman. Coming to you from Hunkameenam Territory with a podcast series about Indigenous men's health and wellness. We aim to inspire, motivate, and empower Indigenous men to be sound in mind, body, and spirit, because that's what health means. Hello, this is Teachings in the Air with Jerry Oldman. Today's uh, podcast is called Answering the Call. I was called by the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of British Columbia to do a presentation for their students on substance use disorder. So here I am sharing my lived experience in regards to substance abuse. Got it. <laughs> okay. i just like to start off with um, a few acknowledgments here. And i start off by saying, Ah, cookstum chcalop, uchel miucha to meuch. Then I follow up by saying, Ah, cookstum chcalop, and schnook nu what man lucht, and schwena ubc. Ah, quilt schtuchem we. I started off by giving thanksgiving, um, acknowledging all of the original people in British Columbia. Ul in my language means original. And miuch is referring to temiuch. And Tamiu, is a planet Earth, and it's the one that holds the gifts for humanity. Food, water, medicines, everything we have. So I was acknowledging those original people, thanking them for taking care of Mother Earth for thousands of years while they were here by themselves. And they lived by the principle of seven generations, which means that Seven generations from the time they existed, seven generations from that time the people would have what they have, and even more, if possible. It's a beautiful philosophy, our guiding thought, that all of my actions today, I'm thinking about 560 years down the line, aren't they going to have water, food, you know, everything that we have? That's why it's important to acknowledge them, to confess to them. Acknowledge actually means to confess. It's a confession. I'm confessing to the indigenous peoples that I'm thankful today for how they lived. Then I gave thanksgiving to the leadership at UBC and the faculty and the staff. That's a man, Luchten. Because they're the ones that watch out for material and watch out for danger for students that come to UBC. That's why they're called Manluchten. And then Ashkwana, uh, those are the ones that bring healing to the people. And because you're in a school of pharmacy, your choice of um, your gift of your purpose in life is to help people to find your gift and to help people with that gift. So I am thinking about pharmacy and you have a chance to help people extend their life just by the medications they take. I'm one of those beneficiaries of that. I have a Barrett's esophagus and I need to have this medicine daily and it extends my life. When I found out I had this, I think it was three years ago, the doctor told me after the they done an internal scan. And he says, I'm glad that you are okayed for us to go inside your body and look because you have Barrett's esophagus. And he showed me a picture of my esophagus. He said, if that ever got cancerous, it would kill you quickly. It would take you quickly. That's what we know about Barrett's esophagus and carrot cancer. So I'm, I'm grateful. See, that's an example of of someone that... Because healing means to become original again. To, when you heal, you become original. So, I know my esophagus is not original, but it extends my life by keeping things under control there in my esophagus. So, you know, so there's a lot of miracles with pharmacy. A lot. So when I was thinking of you and your career of being a pharmacist, someone that um, hands out medication, there's been so many lives extended because of that. There's so many people, their quality of life has improved because of medication. So there's so much beauty around pharmacy. I come from a culture that um, our pharmacy was outdoors. <laughs> you know, my, my grandmother was a herbalist. So she knew the, the, the qualities of, of plants and um, fungus and roots and different things that would help a human being at suffering. So her pharmacy was outdoors or in the water. That was her pharmacy, and she was a pharmacist because she would help people with their suffering. So now, thinking of you, and I don't know you or I haven't seen you, but I'm thinking of your career, because the meaning of life is to find your gift, and every human being is born with a gift, or gifts. There's some lucky got two or three gifts, you know, but we have a principal gift. And the purpose and meaning of life is for you to find that gift and to use it to help people. If you do not find that gift, you will suffer as a human being. And then your family will suffer, your community will suffer, because you're suffering. So, Ingrid told me this is about, um, here, I got a the, the little write-up about it. Substance use and disorder elective, you know, and, uh, I started out in 1976 working to help people overcome addictions at substance use. But addictions actually, you know, there's two types of addictions that I know of anyway. There's substance addiction, which is a, a substance, a gas, a liquid, a solid. You know, the gas is, um, you know, smoking drugs or cigarettes or sniffing gas or any of those gases and you take it into your system. And usually you take it in to alter your conscience. Then there's the liquid. Of course, there's alcohol, Uh, pop is a big addiction, you know, Coca-Cola and drinks like that, the sugar and the caffeine and people get hooked on that. There's the liquids. Then the solids, of course, are the, the pills and different things we eat That's a solid. There's food. People get addicted to food, comfort food, potato chips, you know, there are a lot of people addicted to junk food because it does bring them comfort. So those are the, the substance use areas. And I'm really glad to talk to you, and this is an indigenous perspective around substance use, you know, and uh, disorders. This is my personal perspective. I I then go to a class to (laughs) learn what I'm going to tell you today. You'll notice I don't have a PowerPoint. So I don't have statistics or systemic reviews What I have is my experience, and that's what I'm going to share with you in this area of your learning. You know, I always start off when I talk about indigenous people to Canadian people, or even to my own people, is to start off, and I call it developing that point of reference. Because when you think of an indigenous person, if you ask yourself, what was it like for them 600 years ago before contact with Europeans? What was their culture like? And culture means a way of life. What was their culture like 600 years ago? Well, we know because people do studies. I was listening to these. I had done an opening at, a, I think it was an international conference in Vancouver. At the high downtown Vancouver, and there were medical researchers there, and they were saying they were study they studied um, the bones of indigenous people before contact with Europeans, and said they could not find degenerative diseases that existed in North America before contact. So degenerative, that means, you know, cancer, or heart disease, those kinds of things. It was probably there, but it wasn't prevalent. So the conclusion is that indigenous people were very healthy before contact. And the word health in a dictionary means to be sound in mind, body, and spirit. So if your mind is sound, that means we can teach you, you can absorb knowledge, you can express it, you can practice it once you pick up the teachings that um, teachers lay at your feet. Your mind is clear, you can absorb it, you can remember it, you can apply it. You can become skillful in your profession. If your mind is clear enough to absorb all of that knowledge, that's a healthy sound mind. Of course, there's chemical imbalances that happen in the brain, too. But for generally, for all humanity, or a large portion of humanity, we all have a sound mind when we're born. And we can absorb knowledge. My grandmother says uh, as human beings, we absorbed everything like a sponge until we're six years old. We didn't compare and contrast and everything. We just accepted it. We just absorbed it. It become part of our worldview as a human being. To absorb what's going on around us, what we hear coming. So indigenous people before contact, my grandmother was telling me they would talk to the baby as soon as they know it's inside the mom. Because they know it's absorbing everything like a sponge. So they talk to them about teachings, about philosophy, about their culture, about beauty and they're teaching them while they're forming. And so That's layering a person, or developing a person, to be sound, to be healthy. So, you have a sound body, and all of you there, you have a sound body, but otherwise you, you might really, some of you might have some handicaps and stuff, and there's a lot of people that do, but still can be educated. But you can walk, you can you know you can move about, you can study for hours, you can read many books and you can do that physically. It takes lots of energy to stay up all night long reading a book to give a report the next day. <laughs> you know. You gotta have some physical soundness to do that. And you probably because you have youthful vitality. You know, you still have that vitality, that vibrant, young strength. So you can do that. Then, of course, you're disease-free. But even if you have diabetes, there's medication for that. And you can still be a functioning Canadian. But basically, your body, when your body is sound, you know, that means all your organs, are functioning. At what level? A lot of it depends on us too nowadays. We'll get to that later. And that's where substance use comes in. Then there's that word spirit. Very few people talk about this part of health. You know, we're, we're talking about a spirit. And you might be saying in your mind, what's a spirit? <laughs> you know, it's what holds our body together. When you think of that spirit, and people have many, there's many different philosophies that talk about the human spirit, I imagine. I haven't researched that part, but I just go by what I was taught, that our sili, our spirit, comes from the stars. And the way it comes to be a human is through the actions of our mother and our father. That egg and that sperm come together, then that spirit's there. My spirit was there. And with a combination of water and warmth started to cell divide. Develop my fingers, my toes, everything about me, was held together by a spirit. Once that spirit leaves my body, my body's gonna fall apart and go back to the earth what I'm made of. Because when I eat a carrot, it turns into Jerry's body. It transforms the nutrients from that carrot to become part of my body. When I eat some fish, it literally comes from the Earth, too, because it's thriving off the Earth, too. So we're all built up of different things from the planet. And that's, isn't that amazing? I mean, that's, that's mind-blowing for me. Because I couldn't have a body without carrots, potatoes, deer meat, fish, you know, all of the things I put in my body becomes my body, and it's held together by my spirit. So what are the indicators of a sound spirit? It's when you have this incredible will to live. It doesn't matter the temperature, like here now I think it's 32 degrees outside Manitoba. I still want to live, I still want to participate, even though it's really cold, you know. Maybe I think differently, I have to work outside eight hours a day or something. But I have this incredible will to live, to thrive. Doesn't matter how many mosquitoes, um, how long the pandemic's going or whatever, if my spirit's strong, I still want to participate, I still want to be part of humanity. Second indicator of a sound spirit is you want to be successful at whatever you do, from washing dishes and doing domestics, like I do domestics usually every weekend, means I'm doing the laundry, I'm washing the floor, cleaning the toilets, but I've trained myself to enjoy it and to be successful at that means I want to do a good job, successful. And you want to be a successful sibling if you got brothers and sisters. You want to be a sub, um, successful child if your parents still exist, or a grandchild, or a nephew, or a niece, or a cousin, or an uncle, or an auntie, or a UBC student if your spirit is sound, you want to be successful at it. And the final indicator that I think of anyway for a sound spirit is you have this kindness about you. Some people call that compassion, which means you, you're, you're a willing participant with other people's suffering. So to be a pharmacist, you're going to be a willing participant with someone that comes to you that's suffering, either mentally, physically, that's a part you can help with spiritually. They have to go for somewhere else, <laughs> unless you understand this concept and you can contribute to their spiritual health, their spirit health, not spiritual, their spirit health. And that's um, that's actually quite simple. Just being kind will help another person's spirit. So those are that's being healthy. So now that you know, and if you believe, Jerry, and I don't expect you to uh, just because I'm telling you today, but if you, if you can sort of think, yeah, I, that sort of makes sense, sound mind, sound body, sound spirit, and if I ask you, do you want to be healthy and you nod your head, that means you can take care of your body you can take care of your mind and take care of your spirit. Because when you do wellness planning, I, I do wellness workshops and stuff, and I tell them it's an active pursuit of, you know, helping your mind, body, and spirit, looking for teachings, looking for education to have a healthy mind, healthy body, healthy spirit. That's wellness. You actually, you don't wait, you go look for it, or you do it, you know, so... Anyway so the indigenous people were very healthy they had this incredible will to live they were sound in mind and body when i th- when i used to hear of what my grandparents would tell me about the physical activities and things my ancestors would do it's like they're talking about like everybody's Olymp- olympic level athletes physically you know how far, how fast they can run, how far they can run, how much meat they can carry, how much deer they can carry, you know all of those things they can do. My granny and them would pick tons of berries in the fall because they need it for all winter. Physically fit, physically sound. I love talking to young people in my communities, and I tell them. Part of having a sound body is to sit like an eagle. And they start of looking at me quizzically. What do you mean, sit like an eagle? And I said, Well, I'll tell you. I'll give you an example. I went to residential school, and I come back, and I'm. I become a slouch at the residential school and I'm sitting with my uncle watching TV and my body's like this, I'm crooked, you know, trying trying to lay down in my chair. And he says, geez, nephew, sit like an eagle. I keep sitting like that, you know, and he says, what did I say, nephew? He said, sit like an eagle. And he says, so? So I sit up and I sit up straight. He says, you know why I'm telling you that, nephew? I says, no, uncle. He says, because if you don't sit like an eagle and you get to be an old man, you'll be walking around the way you sit. You'll be crooked and you'll hurt. So I just turned 73 on February the 1st. And I'm glad my uncle told me to sit like an eagle. Because I can still walk and in a good way, do a little bit of running and stuff, you know. But if my body was crooked, it would be a painful life for me. So anyway, that's a long explanation of healthy indigenous people. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, there's this incredible happening happened for indigenous humanity on a planet Earth. Christopher Columbus landed in the Caribbean. That was an incredible experience for us. That one, those boats, his boats touching the Caribbean and them walking on the land. Great big, I call it indigenous Pandora's box. It opened... uh, The lid came off, and the indigenous people started to experience mental health issues, physical health issues, spirit health issues. It was incredible when I think about the the ripple effect of Christopher Columbus landing with the Taino people. I think they were saying, I read on uh, do reading and they were saying I think there were five hundred thousand people in those islands, indigenous people. I think in ten years it went down to five hundred because of the pandemic called smallpox and other things that they were they didn't have resistance to. So, you might ask, well, why, how can that be Pandora's box? Is Christopher Columbus landing in the Caribbean? Well, he opened the door to what they call colonization today. Because he literally was coming to the, looking for a way to the West Indies. Queen Isabella of Spain hired him. Or paid for him to do that. Bought him three ships, gave him money for pay men, sailors, buy food, and they left to look for silk, tea, exotic animals and birds, opioids. You know, there's a whole list of things that would make them rich and powerful in Europe. So she sanctioned Christopher Columbus. And when he went back to Europe, he said to the Pope, there are human beings, that land I found. And the Pope's response was, are they Christians? No, they're not. So it seems the way I was reading this, there wasn't even a hesitation. And the Pope said, then we shall call, then that shall be terra nullius which is an old Roman law that means empty land. So that was the start of racism against indigenous peoples in the, in the Americas because they're devil worshipers, they're pagan, heathen, savages. They're not quite human because they don't worship Christ. You see, as I started to study history, Because as a substance use worker I thought alcohol and drugs were the evil that was destroying indigenous individuals, families, and communities, but it wasn't a substance. Well, it was playing a large part in it, but we need to look at what happened. Because when you distort someone's spirit enough, their life becomes hateful to them. If you damage their body repeatedly, and their mind and their spirit, their lives become hateful to them, and they start looking for the medicine to stop that pain and suffering. So I tell people today, because I I finally asked, because I was stopping bootleggers, drug dealers in my community, you know, and people were still using and stuff, you know, after years, you know. So finally, one day, I asked, why are we like this? Why do we have so much suicide? Why do we have obesity? Why do we have teeth problems? Why do we have broken families? Why are we poor? I finally started asking that. I started in 1976. I finally asked the question in 1993. Why are indigenous people right across the land leading in determinants when you measure health? On the negative side, why are we most incarcerated, the most with cancer, the most with diabetes, the most with, you know, opioid addictions, you know, or, you know, tranquilizers, what they call tranquilizers, you know, the mood-altering drugs. Why are so many of us considered addicted to it? So I was working in uh, Labrador in this community, and they were the last ones in Labrador to leave the land. They were following the of birds. I think until 1918, they're living on the land in a traditional manner. Spoke their language, lived their culture, and were healthy. And they took them off the land and put them on this little island. Their lives changed, their world came upside down. They became addicted. They became suicidal. They became like every indigenous community in Canada. But I, ever since I started doing these presentations, I must tell you there was a, a cadre in there that maintained their culture. It wasn't all, it wasn't total. If it was, I probably would have been depressed and maybe didn't carry on. But I met those ones there that told me that they were maintaining the true culture of those people and holding it for them till they come home again. It means come back to that way of life. So I was there. And there was suicide, there was gas sniffing, there was different substance use things happening. And I heard about sexual abuse and just many things that were, frankly, were depressing. And I was there for 10 days and I was living in a tent by the Atlantic Ocean. Because I asked to live in a tent a month in July, because I was there in February for 10 days in February, and it was negative 50 in Labrador in February, (laughs) and I was living with a family in a small, overcrowded house. So when they asked me to come back, I said, yes, I will, but I will live in a tent, because I visited one of their families living in a tent in 50 below weather, living a traditional way, and they were happy spruce boughs on the floor, nice wood stoves, you know, and smelt good in there, spelt good. And I said, I want to live in a tent. <laughs> you know, so they put me in a tent. But after two weeks there, ten days, on a Sunday morning, I was sitting in my tent, making my tea, and I was depressed. I heard trauma stories that I wouldn't wish on anyone. There's one young mother well she wasn't a young mother anymore because she was her baby died. But we're doing workshops and I'm teaching them about sharing about you know checking in like we're gonna do a check-in how are we feeling you know what's going on that kind of stuff. Over two weeks I found out that, you know, first off, she had headaches. She was tired all the time because she have a hard time to sleep. She had many fears, and I say, what's one of those fears? She says, getting drunk, getting intoxicated. She didn't use the word intoxicated. I say, why, you know, because I'll kill myself. I asked, why do you want to kill yourself? And finally, it come out after ten days, uh, nine days, eight days. I had a baby that is four years old, and it wandered out in the winter time, and it's negative fifty out there. And the dogs in the community attacked that baby and killed it, because they're so hungry. So I could understand then why the furrow under her forehead was like that. Why she would have a hard time to sleep. Why she's fear-filled. Why her life became hateful for her. So what did she do? She started using alcohol, drugs, but still at the same time afraid to. So I heard stories, uh, uh, disclosures like that there. I was working with 27 young adults, and every one of them had a story to tell. And I became depressed, I became burnt out. I said, I don't want to be here, I don't want to work here, I want to go home. And day nine, it was a Saturday, I told my boss who hired me, I said, I want you to send me home. You hire someone that knows Inu language to come here to work with your people. I don't know Inu. No, Jerry, you're doing good. I said, no, I'm not. I said, I'm, I started at 8.30 and there's over half of them not here till 10.30. And he asked me this question. He says, Jerry, did they, all, did they all show up? I said, yes. He says, that in is an accomplishment. He said, we hired a psychologist in 1993, I think it was $500 a day to work with that same group you're working with. And they all came for a half a day and they never come back. So we know you're doing good. <laughs> I am thinking, oh geez. So I said, okay, I'll stay. I didn't want to stay. I was lying. Sunday morning, I wake up in my tent and I'm digging in my duffel bag to change my clothing. And before I left BC, one of my friends said, I know you're going to live in a tent, there's no electricity or anything, so I got a cassette deck for you. That was before these wonderful machines. You know, I got hundreds of albums on this phone, you know. And I got earless well, you know, earbuds and stuff. Nineteen ninety three, that didn't exist yet. So he gave me a cassette deck with batteries in it. You know. And there's a cassette in there. So I pressed play and I was depressed and I was And oh gee, all of a sudden there's music. And there's Tina Turner singing that song, let it be. There will be an answer. Let it be. And I started weeping. I broke the stress line. I sit in my tent by myself, shoulder shaking, sobbing, weeping. Just letting go all the frustration, all the fear, all of the things that were going on with me. And after I finished, I had my energy back. And I said, What's going on is a man made problem, therefore we can fix it. Because uh, one of the elders there told me, because gas sniffing was a big problem there, because it's an isolated community, you know, one way you get there is by air or boat. And, uh, he says, They knew the name of the white man and the year and the date. That we're teaching people how to sniff gas in that community. And that's a substance. Remember the substances, the solid gas and the liquid. So a lot of they became addicted to that substance. Man-made problem. Therefore, we can fix it. Then the elders. Remember, I was telling you, every community's got these circle of people that are just so sound, so healthy. A lot of times, we don't see them because all we see is intoxicated people or poor people. I think that's what Canada sees, what they see in the media. So, I met these elders. They Told their young people to put up this double wide teepee because they use teepees when they're following the caribou herds and stuff in the, in the what they call the barrens of Labrador. And I was, I was down at my tent having tea and it was a weekend and um, this young Inu guy comes riding up because there's no, they don't have a lot of trucks and stuff there because there's no roads, <laughs> you know, just from the airport to the community. Comes up and he's four wheeler and he says, Jerry! You know how to put up a teepee? I said, well, I helped people in Alberta and Saskatchewan put up teepees, but I don't really know. And he, oh, come on, you're, you know more than us, he said. So I went with him and we put up the poles, you know, and then we put the canvas on, double wide, and it looked terrible. You know, it was crooked, it was disheveled looking, you know. And the elder comes up and he says, take it down. So he takes it on, and we put it together, and everything's nice and tight, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> when they talk, they want they talk to me, or they want me to tell them about life on the Western Coast, with Indigenous people. So I tell them about language loss, about addictions, about poverty, you know, not many people doing ceremony and stuff like that. That's the way it was in '93. So I finished telling them, and uh, they'd ask questions, like every community. I said, yes, none of us have been immune to this. Some are hit harder. And he says, um, their spokesperson said, do you have any questions for us? I said, yes, because it's rare to find a circle of elders (laughs) like that. I said, yes, I I have a question. What is it? The interpreter says, they want to know what your question is. I said, ask them if they know why we're like this from coast to coast to coast. And they're having their talk and their language, and uh, they talk to the interpreter. He says, they know why, Jerry. I said, oh, why is that? He, they said, because we're breaking our own laws as indigenous people. We're not respecting the caribou herds like we used to or the salmon or our own body and each other. We're breaking our laws. And that was a life-altering experience for me, because until then I was blaming the government and the churches for the downfall of indigenous people. For sure they contributed to it but it's not that total main reason. So anyway, I left there and I come back to BC and I work and started working for residential school people and learned about trauma. This is a part I think would help you as um, pharmacists because trauma means to be wounded in the dictionary. It means a wound. So for a human being, when we get traumatized, we can get wounded in our mind, our body, or or our spirit, or all three. All three wounded, you're in trouble. You know, you're going to suffer from PTSD, post-trauma stress disorder. When you have PTSD, it means you're prone to triggers. Because you're a pharmacist, you learn about, you know, drugs and um, chemicals and how they interact, what happens when you mix them, you know, all of these things you learn as a pharmacist, right? I'm only guessing I never took pharmacy, (laughs) you know, but I'm thinking that's what you learn. You know, so our body, you've heard about the fight or flight response when we're stressed. That means chemicals get released in your body so you can run faster, fight hard, That's fight or flight. And all of a sudden we get this burst of energy. That means there's chemicals released in our system. And that's to help us run away from the bear or fight the enemy, do stuff like that, right? That's a wonderful drug in our own body. Our own body manufactures it. And there's endorphins to help us with pain and stuff like that in our own system. So when you get triggered, like when a residential school survivor, for instance, get triggered because they've been sexually abused, a child sexually abused. And sexual abuse in the criminal code of Canada means um, exposure. You show your body to the child. Fondling, you use your hands. Orally, you use your mouth. Digitally, you use your finger. Penetration, you penetrate the body with your sex organ. That's sexual abuse. I escorted over 500 survivors through the criminal court of Canada and the civil court. And in every one of those sexual abuse things in the criminal court happened to children in the residential school system. So their body got wounded, their mind got wounded, and their spirit. So that's why some people will say, oh, they don't care. They don't care about their life. They don't care about their family. They don't care about their body. It's all they want is drugs. Which might be true, but then you need to ask why. And um, That trauma, when you get triggered, many indigenous people are triggered by the appearance of professionals. Priests, police, doctors, nurses, anybody with authority, dorm supervisors and stuff with authorities, and they abused children. Or they were physically violent with children, indigenous children. There are over 38,000 registered cases in Canada, and to register a case in the Court of Law of Canada, that takes lots of work. You read the TRC report, and there are 30, over 38,000 registered cases of sexual physical abuse in the residential school system. And they know that's not all of them, because many died before the people even started suing the government of Canada and the churches. So, you know, that's a bleak picture. That's a bleak picture of trauma. People get triggered by the appearance of a priest's collar, a nun's habit, a minister carrying a Bible, you know, all of those things, they get triggered. And they get triggered by racism. Because the created identity of indigenous people in Canada was that you're heathen, pagan, savages, and you're stupid, you're lazy, you're dr- crazy, you're drunken. That became the created image of indigenous people. And it's totally not true. Yes, some of us crumbled under the oppression and the abuse. I became addicted to alcohol and drugs. I started drinking at I was 13 years of age. Everything we put in our body, there's a reason for it. We learn to drink water because we're thirsty. We learn to eat berries and food because we're hungry and our body needs it. Our body will, (laughs) you know, unconsciously tell you what you need, that you need zinc so your body will direct you to eat a certain food. That's how incredible our body is. A lot of people don't know this, you know, or they don't believe it. <laughs> I believe it, you know. So so there, there's that body. Like I was uh, impacted by racism, the word stupid Indian. Crazy, lazy Indians. Drunken Indians. That's what I heard as a child. And I internalized those words. I took them in. I started drinking 13 years of age and me and my friends would drink and we'd hear people on the street calling us drunken Indians. So we'd say, you want to see drunk? I'll show you drunk. And we started what they call chug lugging. So they call us chugs now. I drink till I fall on the ground. You're looking at this elder now, how I look, you wouldn't believe that I used to do that. But it shows you what trauma will do to an individual. So that racism, at exclusion, is very painful and hurtful to have someone think they're superior to you and show it through their actions and their words. Religion was another trigger or trauma for us because of the pedophiles in the system, but not only that, they were discouraging our culture. They have a government outlaw potlatch, Sundance, Sweat Lodge. That is influenced by the Christians, believe me. (laughs) The government just didn't say one day, oh, we better outlaw potlatches. You know, so religion had a big part of our trauma and still people get traumatized today. I know people will never walk in their church. A lot of them have passed now. The younger ones might go to church, I don't know. But my age, and a little younger, 20 years younger than me, they refused to set foot in a church because they were abused by clergy. So there's racism, there's religion, then there's a reservation system, which is the Indian Act. I don't know if you know this, but Canada is the second largest landmass country in the world. In indigenous Indian reservations, lands reserved for Indians are zero point five of the land percent of the land mass of Canada. And you wonder why indigenous people are poor? They got no resources to sell, no resources to build things. They have it, it's out there. But they were locked out of the economy too at the beginning. So reservations. It's like a minimum security jail. I don't know if any of you ever walked into a prison. But if you do, you feel the energy there. It's hopeless. It's angry. I don't see a lot of rehabilitation happening. They're protecting us from them by putting them there. and uh, Even though we're I think less than 5% of the population were overrepresented in prisons. Women are now being incarcerated at higher rates than anybody in Canada, indigenous women. And there's reasons for that because of what happened when I'm going to get to. So there's a resident, and then there's a residential school caused large trauma. And the thing about it is anytime someone suffers from post-trauma, if they don't get healed, or get help for it. They bring it home and their actions impact their children and their spouses in the community. It becomes intergenerational. So that's what happened with the residential school. Then there's RCMP. You know, a lot of indigenous people get traumatized just at the sight of an RCMP officer. i tell you how I got there like that. I was um, I don't know, five years old, six years old, maybe five. It's in that, when I was that age, I was born in 1949. Alcohol, indigenous people, it was against the law for indigenous people even to be in the presence of alcohol. My late father, we we're at Williams Lake Stampede, and we were camping there. So we went out to get fur boughs to make a mattress in the floor of our tent. Oh, it smells nice when you put fur boughs in the floor. It's insulation too and a good. We're driving back to the campsite and there's a hitchhiker on the road. There's a white man with a case of old style beer. So my dad picked him up. My dad was a very kind man. We didn't even go very far, and this RCMP pulled, pulled my dad over, lights flashing, siren going, you know, and RCMP officer comes to my dad's side of the car and says, get out of the vehicle. Open the trunk, that's where they put the beer, and my dad opened the trunk, and the fur bows in there, and beer, and the officer says, well, I'm going to have to arrest you. It's against the law for you to have alcohol or be in the presence of alcohol. And a white man in the back seat sitting with me, and my brother puts up his hand, waves at the officer, it's mine. It's my beer. Well, he can't even be in the presence of alcohol, and they cuffed my dad and put him to jail. So that affected me with RCMP officers. Then we hear about um, people being killed in jail cells. So as youngsters, teenagers, we see an RCMP officer, we run, because they might kill us, (laughs) you know? It's not true that they were going to, but because of those events, that's the way we thought. And the last one is uh, removal. That's the 60 scoop. They went into the community to start taking children. One of my friends, he became a social worker, and he says, I'm gonna go look for my brothers and sisters. They got taken. So he found one sister in Montreal, goes over there and sees her and asks her if she wants to come home and she says no. She's still there. Then he says, I found my brother and my other younger brother and sister in Detroit, Michigan. And I went there to see them too and introduced myself and he says they didn't want to come home either because they're adults, by now young adults. And I found out, there. so there's 60 scoop. there's babies and children scattered all around Canada and Western Europe, too. So that caused a big trauma. We don't trust social workers. So you add all those together as traumas, so the potential for indigenous people to be triggered every day is there. So when you get triggered and you get disturbed, You look for medicine. Alcohol became my favorite medicine because I would black out when i drink. So every time I got drunk, I have no memory. I'm walking around. I don't know a thing. It seemed like it. Didn't know what I'd done for a week sometimes. Because my memories were about those two white men that abused me when I was a child. And I don't think any human being wants to remember those things. So you start to use substances, substance use. I started to use substance use to to forget. Poor choice of medicine. I became an alcoholic. You know, my life became unmanageable until I stopped. You see that? I'm telling you my story and similar stories like this for every Indigenous person. In Canada, none of us are immune to racism, to religion, to reservations, to residential school, to RCMP, or to removal. Because we all had family that experienced that. So it's way, the best thing to ask when you encounter someone that's suffering and it's obvious they're suffering, is to say to yourself, I don't know what happened. Don't fall into that pathologizing trap, because the pathologizing is not right to pathologize any human being. That's their condition because they're indigenous, they're drunks. That's pathologizing, that's not true. People still stereotype me as indigenous I must drink. I haven't drank since 76. I went to a doctor, must be seven years ago now, I rarely go to the doctor because I take care of myself, but I went and I had a skin condition in my scalp, in my hair, in my head I mean, <laughs> not in my hair, in my skin and my head. In this, my doctor sent me to a specialist. Skin specialist. I had a good doctor, a woman doctor, it was really good to me. And she says, "Yeah, no, Jerry, I'm going to send you to a specialist. That looks, you know, looks like he could use some more help than I can give you, you know." And I was really glad she was honest with me. I said, "Okay." So I go see the specialist. Got the gloves on, looking at my scalp. How much do you drink? Oh, drink what? Alcohol. Oh, I haven't drank since 76. Continues with the examination. Do you drink every day? Are you a binge drinker? You know? And I said, didn't you hear me? I don't drink. See, the stereotyping was so strong. The stereo means twin. That all indigenous people must be drunks. It's not true. My community, 75% of my community is sober, alcohol and drug free. 25% of them are so obvious that's what you see in town. You know, so I think there's a lot of misconceptions about indigenous people. So that's substance use and how we got there in a nutshell. Like I was on Happy Camper. You know, I was called a stupid Indian when I was six years old, and I was slapped across the ear and the face and the cheeks. Called a stupid Indian. I remember that like it was yesterday. I sat there in shock, and I was weeping. In my paper like this. I had my arithmetic on there, and they were all red X's beside every question that I answered. Stupid Indian. You know, and I'm sitting there, and I'm weeping. And she says, you erase all those mistakes and fix it. And I'm erasing my paper and I'm crying so much the paper gets wet and the paper rips. So I get hit some more, you stupid Indian. You see, to equate that to some substance use, some people might have a hard time to wrap their head around that. But that's part of what happened to me. So I want you to take this but at, and do your best not to generalize, because what happened to me happened to every human on earth somewhere, every race. I've met many, I've talked to so many people in my 73 years, and I was you know, I gotta admit to you, I was surprised when I heard that there was sexual abuse in white families too, that there's poverty there, there's drunkenness. Because when I grew up, I thought it was just us like that. And it's not true. One of my trainers told me in 1976 he's from the United States, African man working in the ghettos. He says, Jerry, 10% of every workforce is alcoholic. I look at him, I say, no, it can't be. Yeah, 10%. I said, you mean doctors, lawyers, and judges, and policemen, alcoholic? 10%, Jerry, every part of society. He says, some of them are closet alcoholics. They're secretly drinking. And you got to use that substance to feel all right They're an alcoholic. <laughs> he was a wonderful teacher. And um, they're training us in a five week program to become addictions counselors. And I'm passionate about culture because culture helps save me. I started going to Sweat Lodge, I started doing ceremonies, I started singing songs, and it's uplifting me, it's empowering me. And he's watching me and we're doing um, role plays and how to work with groups and different things, you know. And he calls me, he says, this is Jerry, he says, I notice you're really passionate about your culture. And I says, oh yeah. I said, culture is a medicine for my people. <laughs> and he says, Jerry, I know you're really passionate, but I want you to know everybody's different. And he says. If somebody wants to sober up climbing telephone poles, you go find that person telephone poles to climb up. And I got it. A simple explanation. So when I work with people now, I watch. And what will help me I don't force culture on them. Because they all got their own way. And sure enough, there's one of the women in my community was gonna lose her children, so they wanted me to work with her. And she'd get intoxicated and be away from home for days and end. So I told the RCMP, I said, you arrest her when you see her if she's intoxicated or drunk in public and call me. So they did, so I went and I went to the priest I said, hey, you got a Bible? He's surprised because everybody knows Jerry's a cultural man. I says, yeah. I said, it's for one of the people I'm working with. I think it will help her. Oh, okay. So he goes in the church and gets me a Bible. And I go into the jail cell with her, and I give her the Bible. And it worked. She got comfort from it. She got strength from it. That same um, trainer told us a story about uh, how we had to be careful when we're working with people with substance use issues. So he told us a story, and it's about this man he found. I think it's from Zorba the Greek. I'm going to find the book and read it. But he says he found he's seen a cocoon, a butterfly cocoon. So he broke off the twig and put it in his hand. And he was blowing it. And the warmth of his breath and the warmth of his hand, that creature inside the cocoon started moving and it started crawling out of the cocoon, and he could see it's not fully developed. So he stopped blowing it, and he tried to stop it and push it back into the cocoon. But it kept crawling out, and it crawled out of the cocoon and died in his hands. He says, you don't be forcing people to sober up. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you work at their pace, you know. So it is a wonderful story for me. That teacher was so wonderful. He transformed me with words and also to see humanity because everybody that comes to you when you're working in a pharmacy there's something wrong somewhere and you're going to extend their life or make it more manageable better quality life that's good but you be careful and sincere with your words you know i've had pharmacists that treat me really good. I had pharmacists that probably wouldn't give me the time of day. And I know, I know now that it's up to me to develop relationships with the professionals. I have a pharmacist now in Brandon here. He calls me Mr. Olman, which is so cool. There's very few people call me Mr. Olman. My dentist is one of them in Vancouver. She calls me Mr. Olman. She's retired now. She was the first one in 1995 to call me Mr. Olman in my life. Holy cow, it empowered me, made me feel good. I'm acknowledged by a Canadian to be Mr. Olman. You know, it might sound weird for people, but I'm just telling you what it done for me. So I, as a result, I paid her thousands and thousands of dollars to fix my teeth changed my fillings, I had those lead fillings and got porcelain ones, you know, and all from Mr. Allman. Pharmacist now, I go there and I I'm sitting there, they got chairs, socially distanced chairs, you know. And I'm sitting there and he comes out and he hollers, he sees me and he hollers over to the ones that are doing the filling of prescriptions. Mr. Allman's here you you work on his prescription <laughs> <you know? laughs> cuz we connected and we respect each other he's a compassionate man that means he's a willing participant with my suffering my Barrett's esophagus my allergies you know that's what i get medication for you know and uh, yeah So it's not a requirement you connect with all of your people you work with, but with some of them. But you always have this respectful, highest form of respect you have is to listen to people with everything you have. Even if it sounds wrong, you still listen. Then respond after. So the best thing Even if you have bias against someone, still be professional, the highest form of professionalism. Listen, engage. Because we all have biases. There's so many men biased against women as a weaker people. Women can't drive, there's silly men out there yet. (laughs) I think those things, you know, it's totally not true. I help train police. And my instructor says, because he done studies and stuff, he says, you know, Jerry, we have to let these men know, because some of them would treat the woman trainees poorly. That woman, physically, can come to deadly force way quicker than a male. Because we're training these young men, they're macho. They think women can't do this. You know, so, Yeah. Anyway, Ingrid, I don't know how long I've been talking here. Um, uh, sometimes I just go on and on and on. I don't know I'm making a lick of sense or whatever, but I just want to let you know why I use substances. And what it took me to get out of it, first off, was um, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. I had suicide ideation. I wanted to kill myself. And one morning, I am an early morning person all my life. I woke up early one morning and my dad gave me a rifle one Christmas. It's a beautiful 32 Winchester. He says, "You're the hunter for the family now, Jerry, oh okay." And I'd have that rifle. In the mornings, I get up and I'd be laying there by myself and I start to visualize using that rifle in myself. I'm going to end these memories. I'm going to end this feeling that I'm stupid, that there's something wrong with me. I'm going to end it. I'm tired of this. One morning, I woke up, and I reached under, and I got the rifle and the bullets, and I was walking to walk up in the hills and shoot myself. I was walking by my brother's house, who was like a son to me, because when when he was born, I was in a residential school. And I didn't even know my mom was pregnant. And I came home and there was a baby on the floor. And I said to my mom, you send that baby back to its house. I didn't come back from residential school to be a babysitter. And she says, that's your brother. <laughs> and I said, whoa. And I go pick up that baby. And I carry that baby around all summer and he's pulling my ears, sticking his finger in my nose, you know, doing all of those things that babies do. Hugging me, holding me. Anyway, he became like my son. We got really close. And I was walking by his house and I was in this haze of called suicide ideation. And uh, I'm walking by and I hear Voice, hey, Jerry. And it snaps me out of my dreamlike state. And I look, and it's my brother. He's going like this. I got coffee on, Jerry. Come on, have a coffee. As soon as I walk through the door, I give him the shells and the rifle. And I said, you're the hunter of the family, bro. Really? Yeah. Okay. and he takes it. Then I started looking for help. And I got support. And that's what I needed was support. Not to feel sorry for me. Not to patronize me. Or be sanctimonious around me. Sanctimonious means holier than now. But to support me, and I got it. I was lucky I got it. And I'm here now. We're all human beings. We all bleed the same. We breathe the same air. We live in the same beautiful country. We need to work together, because the children are relying on us adults to do the right thing to dismantle the them-and-us syndrome in this country that's in the planet, actually, on the planet. Them-and-us. It's just us, (laughs) you know.